Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. In today's show, why seaweed could help solve some of our biggest environmental problems, and why shark nets need to come down. You're listening to 3CR. Coming to 3CR on the 13th of March is Rainbows Don't Fade With Age. Rainbows Don't Fade With Age, presented by VELS LGBTI Ageing and Age Care, sharing stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being and visibility of older LGBTI plus people. Rainbows Don't Fade With Age on Mondays at 2pm every fortnight on 3CR. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Seaweed, it's delicious, it's nutritious, but could it also be a solution to climate change, plastic pollution and even deforestation? Seaweed has been farmed for millennia in places like Japan, but now seaweed farming in the ocean could be about to go global as the world looks for alternatives to farming on land. Scott Pilius at the University of Queensland has recently looked at just how big an impact farming seaweed could have on fixing our biggest environmental problems. I spoke to Scott earlier this week via Zoom. All right, Scott, seaweeds, they're already in our sushi, they're already in some of our supplements, but why is seaweed now being talked about as one of the solutions to some of our biggest environmental challenges? Yeah, well, people are kind of looking around the world, looking at all these global challenges that we face, things like climate change and food security, biodiversity loss, and trying to obviously figure out how we can solve many of them. And people are looking at the ocean as um, this potential uh, source of, uh, of solutions. Um, it's obviously very, very big. Um, and there's a lot of, so there's a lot of uh, space out there where we could be possibly growing stuff. And in particular, people are very excited about growing seaweeds um, because unlike um, crops on land or even uh, cultivating fish in the ocean, you don't need to put anything in really. Uh, well, that's not strictly true, but you have to, you don't need to add any water. You don't need to add any fertilizers or anything like that. You do have to put in a lot of gear. Um, but uh, other than that, it, there, and there's just heaps of space, heaps of sunlight where we could potentially be growing seaweed. So uh, from that perspective, it's kind of this uh, untapped potential is the way people talk about it. Now, I, I think we should be a little bit cautious about talking about it in that way because the oceans are already kind of under threat from a heap of, of things. Um, but that's kind of the, the broad feeling from a lot of people in this, uh, in this space. You know, seaweeds can be used for lots of different things. And I think that's the other reason why people are very excited about them, um, is there is this potential to really grow kind of uh, this pipeline. Um, so using, in the same way that we use like soy or corn, 
for lots of things, for plastics, for fuels, um, as sources of different compounds. Seaweeds have all, all that potential. And in addition, like I was saying, we don't. there's a lot of seaweeds we don't understand their biochemistry very well. But that means there's a lot of potential for really interesting compounds to be um, extracted and used for a variety of things. So um, people talk about this red seaweed asparagopsis, which is present in Australia, which fed to cattle can reduce their methane, um, which is very exciting. But that's I, I suspect that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of what is actually going on um, in seaweeds around the world, which could have lots of really interesting impacts for what we're trying to do and for sustainability objectives, things like that. And in your study, so you looked at some of the, you looked at quantifying some of these environmental benefits. If we farm seafood, seaweed to eat as food for livestock, um, as a product in manufacturing. So what are some of the biggest benefits that you found in moving some of this um, agriculture into the ocean? Yeah, so it seems like, uh, you know, if we if we were to grow more stuff in the ocean, reducing it would basically just reduce the pressure on land. And we we quantified that um, to some extent. We made some pretty broad assumptions in a few scenarios. So one of the scenarios we looked at was what if everybody on Earth uh, consumed seaweed as 10 percent of their diet? So that's huge. That would be a huge change. Um but if, if that were to happen, it would save, uh, I think it's over 100 million hectares of land. So we wouldn't need to convert, uh, I think it's 110 million hectares of land um, for agriculture. And that would be huge. I mean, that would save a lot of potential habitat um, for potentially threatened biodiversity on land. Uh, it would potentially save uh, agricultural inputs like water and fertilizer. Um, so in places where water is scarce, that could be really um, useful. Um, also saving carbon mitigation, uh, it, pr providing carbon mitigation, sorry. So we wouldn't need to admit it, emit as much. We didn't, wouldn't need to cut down trees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's, you know, that's pretty exciting. Uh, we, what we didn't look at in the study, unfortunately, is we didn't look at kind of the costs of actually farming seaweed on, on that scale. I can't remember off the top of my head um, how much area in the ocean it would require, but it would be quite a lot. And um, so we don't look at the carbon costs of that. We don't look at, um, uh, yeah, we don't look at the economic costs of that. So it would obviously take a lot of space and require a lot of gear. So mm -hmm. whether or not um, this kind of thing makes sense from a, uh, like a climate perspective, um, that requires a bit more research to quantify that. Um, but just if we're kind of looking at the globe holistically, kind of a top-down view and thinking about um, solutions for land use, solutions for biodiversity, then this could relieve a little bit of pressure um, at the expense probably of some impacts in the ocean, which we'd have to consider. Mm. So in the study, you, uh, one of the figures that you found for Australia is that you know, about 75 million hectares of Australia's oceans are suitable for seaweed farming, which is about 7%. Of, of our oceans, what makes the oceans suitable for growing so seaweed? Yeah, so the way we quantified this uh, is it was kind of a two-step thing. So we basically looked at uh, we, we, we looked at a, a list of different seaweed species that are basically that have enough data for us to do our analysis. So in that sense, they were we have information on where they're found. We have information on um, what they could be used for and how they could be processed and turned into food or feed or um, feedstock for biofuels. So 
we've got this list of seaweed species, uh, these potential seaweed species. And um, then we uh, looked at the global oceans. We, we have a, a resource on oceanographic conditions. So looking at lights, looking at nutrients, looking at temperature, all those things across the whole, whole globe. And we just we use this uh, modeling framework where we basically said, well, if seaweeds are found in these conditions in these parts of the oceans, then they're probably we could probably grow them in these parts of the oceans where there are similar conditions. And so that gave us this biophysical um, envelope. So area where we could feasibly grow seaweeds. And then we said, well, we're probably not going to have seaweed farms in the middle of the ocean. We're probably not going to have seaweed farms where there's huge wave action. They're probably not going to have seaweed farms in the middle of traffic lanes, you know, shipping lanes. Um, uh, probably have, aren't going to have them in the middle of protected areas. So then we cut out a whole bunch of those zones. And what was left is basically what we are defining as suitable. Mm. So the next question then is, should we farm that 7% of the Australia's oceans? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think uh, I think it's it's kind of an open question, and it's a, it's something we need to think really hard about. Um, you know, part of the reason we wanted to do this study is just to see what the potential is um, to kind of give us a sense of just like this holistic view of the Earth and and that potential. Um, whether or not we should do it is a, is another question, right? There are going to be lots of impacts from seaweed farming. We published another study that looked more at kind of the social and environmental impacts of farming seaweeds. And um, while there could be a lot of potential benefits, um, there's a lot of things that we don't really know yet. Um, and there's a lot of questions about how seaweed farms will impact biodiversity, um, how they'll, they're gonna alter ecosystems. Um, and so I think, um, and, and just, uh, we don't have a really good understanding of how that industry would operate. Um, in the Australian context, um, certainly people have been farming seaweeds for a long time in, in places like Japan and China and Korea. Um, but here in Australia, it's kind of a bit unknown. So I think uh, I think we certainly should start out farming seaweeds um, sort of on small scales and kind of see how it goes. We need to develop proper regulations. Re at, the, at the moment, the regulatory frameworks for seaweed farming in Australia are a bit of a mess. So we need to sort that stuff out um, so we can prioritize, figure out how we can grow this industry in a way that prioritizes not just um, producing um, and the economic benefits of that, but also understanding the environmental benefits and also the social benefits of these uh, of these farms. Mm. How, how is seaweed farmed? Is it just farmed in one way or are there lots of different ways of doing it? Yeah, there's a few different ways. Um, what's, what normally happens in um, places like Indonesia and the Philippines, places in Africa, it's kind of low tech. It's done in intertidal areas where people um, will, gather sticks, shove them into the into the sand, string lines between them and grow seaweed on these lines. And that's just off the bottom. Um, that can have negative impacts on what was there before. So often seagrass beds are sacrificed um, in those kind of implementations. Sometimes they're put on corals and that's not good for them. Um, but if we're gonna scale up production and actually practice it on a scale that kind of like we look like, look kind of how we look at it in our paper, um, it's going to be more floating impl implementation. So you're going to have mooring lines. You're going to have like probably anchors on the bottom uh, attached to ropes, strung between buoys um, and lines between them. Some people have looked at growing seaweeds on nets, um, but it's all kind of the same. We're going to have some sort of structure that's 
embedded in the ocean um, and then seaweed is grown on nets or lines that are floating near the surface. That was Scott Pilius from the University of Queensland. After the break, the latest campaign to remove shark nets. But first, here's Goanna's classic Solid Rock, reworked with Moss, Tasman Keith and William Barton. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Standing up, sacred ground, living on borrowed 
you sick and tired of the news reports And your modern day life is a blues of sorts Put your head in the sand Hey, this is Jane from The Herb Please support community radio and your local music scene We can't hear you You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR And before that was an epic version of Goanna's Solid Rock Featuring Moss, Tasman Keith and William Barton Shark nets are used at some beaches in Queensland and New South Wales to kill sharks. The idea is that they protect people from shark encounters. But they also kill lots of other marine life, like a dolphin that recently drowned in a net in Sydney. So do the nets actually do the job they're meant to be doing? And at what cost to marine life? To find out, I spoke to Sea Shepherd campaigner Lauren Sanderman. Hi, Lauren. So recently there was a tragic incident, a dolphin caught in, a, in shark nets near Sydney. How common is it for wildlife like marine mammals to be caught in these nets? Unfortunately, this kind of incident, while we don't always get image of every single entanglement, is quite a common occurrence in shark nets because they're so destructive for our marine environment. Um, For example, last meshing season, a turtle was killed in shark nets every 12 days. So it's quite a common occurrence across dolphins, rays, turtles, you know, other marine life, um, all the marine life that we cherish. But unfortunately, it's often out of sight, out of mind, but it's quite destructive and quite common. Mm. As you just mentioned, like there might be some uncertainty. Well, we don't necessarily know exactly how many are being uh, uh, how much marine wildlife is being caught in these nets? Who is keeping track of these numbers? Is anyone? Um, so the Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales oversees this program and they release, I guess, the annual catch record um, in July every year, the end of the program. So for context, shark nets are only in place in New South eight months of the year. They're set from September 1st to the end of April. Um, come July, they release the catch numbers um, for what's officially recorded. So uh, officially, um, we know those numbers in July. But again, this, these are numbers from only what's found in the net is recorded. Um, we know things slip out, um, things die off, they've been released. Um, so this is a very, very conservative number that's officially recorded. Mm, so we're not really getting a true sense of the impact of shark netting, in other words. No, by no stretch of the imagination. And of course, it's not just marine mammals getting caught, but also sharks themselves. Do we have any data on that? Well, yeah, there's plenty of sharks. So uh, I think for context, I should describe. So shark nets in New South Wales technically are only meant to target three species of sharks. So white shark, tiger shark or bull shark. Um, They're not very good at uh, catching uh, either of those species. So, for example, last meshing season, there was about officially 376 animals that were caught in the program, uh, only 51. One were white tiger or bull sharks, um, but there are plenty of other sharks that aren't targeted uh, that are caught and killed in this program, including, you know, critically endangered grey nurse sharks, um, dusky whalers, you know, even wobbegongs. Um, so basically anything that can swim in the ocean or dive in the ocean can and has often been caught in these shark nets. So can we take a step back and can you run us through how these shark nets have come to be in the waters of Sydney in the first place? Because they've been there quite a while, ah. haven't they? They have. They've been uh, in New South Wales. They've been used since uh, 1930s. So we're talking about a 1930s kind of standard of beach safety when we talk about shark nets. And I guess for the average listener, when we talk about shark nets, we're not talking about shark enclosures or a barrier as they're commonly misconceived. We're talking about uh, 150 meters of gill netting that's set about 500 meters from the shoreline and only goes about halfway up the water column from the surface of the bed. So they're not. A barrier. We're talking about a stray fishing net that's just kind of anchored off the shore of about 51 beaches in New South Wales. So these nets were designed in the 30s, essentially to 
the logic behind them was to kill local populations of sharks. And, you know, we know well now that sharks don't have local populations. They're highly migratory species. But um, they just kind of, they're a relic of a really uh, barbaric and archaic way of approaching um, bather protection and shark mitigation. And they very much stay in the water purely because they've just always been there. Um, but the scientific evidence we that people know now, we know now that shark nets do not perform any kind of risk reduction um, in protecting bathers. And we know that they're horribly destructive for the marine environment. So can we just break down that um, that risk protection element? So, I mean, they are killing sharks. Um, why are they not um, helping mitigate the risk of people who enter the water? That's an excellent question. I mean, so for context, about 40% of sharks that are caught in um, shark nets are caught on the beach side of the net. So they're not actually preventing sharks from engaging and interacting with people. Um, we know that from, so these nets are deployed between Newcastle and Wollongong, um, about 85% of shark interactions that occur in that stretch of area uh, happen at a beach where there's a shark net in the water. So the shark nets aren't actually preventing interactions from happening. Um, so they're not actually preventing uh, bites and interactions from occurring. Uh, and we know historically as well from other case studies around the world that killing, actively going out to try and cull sharks doesn't actually reduce the bite or the risk of a shark bite occurring. So it's kind of this double whammy of they're not there as a barrier or a deterrent to sharks to actually approach the beach. And they're not actually effective at, you know, killing all the sharks in the ocean, um, which we know doesn't help um, with, say, the protection anyway. With shark nets, uh, New South Wales are only in the water, as I said, for eight months of the year. They've been doing that since the 40s. So um, we know we don't see spikes in shark interactions um, during those times. We know people are using the water in winter a lot more, um, thanks to you know improvements in wetsuits, dedicated surfers, swimmers. But we also know from around the world, shark nets have been used in other places around the world, and they've been removed in other places around the world. Um, so when we talk about replacing shark nets, we know historically we've seen that we're not kind of taking a gamble on this. We know that shark nets without a me any measure or any stretch of the imagination do not work to protect people. Um, so people want to be able to coexist with a healthy, thriving marine ecosystem and sharks are so fundamental to that. And we can have that with modern measures and modern shark mitigation. We wouldn't accept a safety standard that's over nearly 100 years old in any other part of our lives. So why is our ocean safety the exception? Mm. So what would you like to see happen with shark nets? Uh, immediately removed, uh, but I guess to context that, I think replace is the adjective I should be using. So we have so much incredible technology these days that can, has been proven to actually be effective in reducing the risk of a shark interaction occurring and also doesn't kill all of our local marine life. So we're talking about drone surveillance, um, which has a double, um, a double benefit of actually being able to help with surf life-saving uh, spots, swimmers who are struggling. So it help, can help reduce the risk of drownings that occur, which is a much more um, heightened, a higher risk at a beach. Um, then we also have things such as effective tracking and tagging programs. Um, so you can have shark listening stations that can send out alerts when a tag shark is actually approaching the area. Um, then we have amazing technology and personal deterrent devices um, that can actually be used on the wearer that have been um, tested to actually proven to help repel sharks if they were to approach your personal space, um, as well as things as, you know, proper shark barriers and enclosures that can section off parts of the beach um, from anything engaging without entangling 
marine life. And of course, the number one thing is stronger community education. We learn a lot about, you know, what to do if you're caught in a rip or sunburn or drowning. But people aren't really taught about how to mitigate the risk of a shark um, in the area. And we know that, you know, if you're in the ocean, there's sharks nearby, it's their home environment. So there's a lot people can do themselves that actually reduces the risk. Why is it that, I mean, so what you're describing is just like there's so many different options. Why is it that, you know, the nets have lasted so long? Why are we backing nets as the main solution in this part of Australia at least? I guess it's important to understand that nets aren't backed as the main solution. When we talk mm -hmm. about expanding shark mitigation technology, shark nets aren't what's put forward. Um, they're actually they're just kind of reticent of an archaic age so it's kind of they're not being pushed forward as the savior and there's absolutely no evidence that shows that um that they work um that it's just more of they've always because this program is so long it's nearly 100 years it's just been kind of there um in society so we've actually gotten to this peak where people have actually woken up and are a lot more informed about the destructive impact of shark nets and that they don't work and now that we have all this incredible modern technology that can actually replace them in the water, we're seeing this great push for shark nets to be removed. And that's coming from the members of the community. Um, the government has had years of public sentiment uh, research in this area. So we know the communities do not support shark nets. They do not support um, these measures by any means of the imagination. Uh, last year, every single council in New South Wales that has shark nets um, put it forward motions asking for the government to remove shark nets. And we also have the backing by the leading experts in shark mitigation um, saying that this doesn't work and you're killing all of our marine life. So essentially, we've got this massive push across all sectors of the community on this issue calling for shark nets to be removed. But at the end of the day, it falls on and the primary stakeholder, who is the Minister for Agriculture, uh, to just make the decision. So it entirely falls within the realms of politics why these nets haven't been removed. Mm. I just want to ask you something. I noticed you called um, the encounters with sharks shark interactions. So we're not talking necessarily about shark attacks. So, you know, can you tell us a bit about why using that term? Well, the terminology is important for kind of reconceptualizing how people perceive sharks. You know, sharks have a pretty bad PR for the average person. I guess it's that Jaws mentality. So when we talk about shark interactions, not every time you interact with a shark, is going to lead to a bite. It can be things like, you know, sharks swims by you, it can bump you, you know, bites do occur. Um, but it's all under this matrix of there are different ways people interact and engage with sharks. Um, but they're not all this, you know, this kind of lethal, they're out to get you mentality. So rephrasing how we talk about how humans interact with sharks also helps um, redefine, I guess, that kind of uh, that really dramatic uh, media sensationalized way of approaching, even talking about shark attacks. We know that when sharks bite people, most of the time they're mistaken identity bites. They're not out actively hunting people. So calling you know shark atta attacks or you know sharks are stalking humans at the beach. They're just there doing their own thing most of the time, and they're actually not interested in people. Um, so there's actually you know with the advancements in drone technology and you know drone photography, we can see now these some incredible imagery coming out of um, sharks just kind of swimming by, swimming under surfers, you know, doing their own thing. And most of the time, people don't even know that these animals are in the water with them. Um, so it's really helping to break down that negative uh, misconception around sharks so that people are not quite so sensationalized um, when sharks are brought up. And of course, encountering a shark can be an extremely wonderful and amazing experience as well. 
Yeah. I mean, my partner hates going snorkeling with me because I actively try and find sharks whenever I'm out in the ocean. <laughs> um, last question. How can people get involved with um, the calls to remove shark nets in New South Wales? Ah, excellent question. Well, the first and foremost, um, for more information on this issue, you know, Sea Shepherd has a lot of information on our um, shark defence campaign uh, webpage. I would also encourage, highly encourage people to go check out the documentary on Boy Shark Call, which is on Stan. An incredible documentary on this issue and also a similar issue up in Queensland, which uses shark nets and drum lights uh, in a more aggressive manner. Um, but to get involved, um, the first thing, especially if you're in New South Wales, um, I would say write to your local MP on this issue. You don't have to be in a coastal electorate um, to be pushing on this issue because if you use the beach, you have a say in this. Um, so people often underestimate the impact their individual voice has on this issue. And as a campaigner who's been involved in this for a while now, I cannot overstate the importance of people actually going out of their way to talk to their members of the community and especially their political representatives on this issue because it is a political issue. Um, of course, you can also uh, volunteer with Sea Shepherd. We'll always take in um, volunteers who want to help out across a number of causes. That was Lauren Sandeman from Sea Shepherd. That's all we've got time for this week. To listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. We'll be with you again next week. And in the meantime, stay well.